Annapurna to uh, this Sunday afternoon. Um, it's uh, nice to be talking with you again about a topic that um, we just touched on um, last time, namely the topic of family. Mm -hmm. right? And um, so I've been thinking about family, musing about the centrality of family in literature, mm -hmm. especially literature and drama, novels. You know, it's, it's one of the biggest themes, even bigger than war, I think. Um, you know, from Oedipus, Aeschylus, mm -hmm. Oresteia, mm -hmm. obviously Sophocles, but also in the East, um, you have the Mahabharata that is a family war. You have uh, the role of filiality in Confucius and the Confucian traditions. Um, and all of these different traditions seem to recognize the family as a place of conflict. Yes. Right? So, uh, so the family is not taken for granted. Mm -hmm. It is a problem. Yes. It is a question. It's a right? problem. It's a question. Yeah. It's fascinating because I think often we think about the domestic space as simple, maybe even boring. And um, I think again and again we see in our stories that it is the, the kind of locus of the most drama, the most tension, um, the most sort of self-actualization and self-destruction all of those forces. Um, so it's always worth considering yeah, yeah. <laughs> what's going on in the family. It's such a tangle. Yeah, yeah. And it's the aspect of life that usually no one tells us anything about that's until right. it starts to break, <laughs> yeah. right? And so, um, and, and that's why all, almost all the, uh, the classics that deal with family mm -hmm. uh, from the Greeks on through Jane Austen always deal with family when it's reached breaking point. But before we go on, for the sake of viewers who um, might not remember very clearly what happened in Sophocles' Oedipus, uh, do you think you could summarize the story for us? Certainly. So Oedipus the King, the play by Sophocles, is based on the Greek myth of Oedipus, um, which would have been very familiar to Sophocles' audience. But here in this play, um, we begin by seeing Oedipus as the king of Thebes, um, his subjects are being plagued by a kind of blight that's been cast over the city, and they're supplicating themselves to him and asking for help. As it turns out, there's a curse over the city because, um, as we learn, there's blood guilt on Thebes. And this is because someone whom Thebes is still harboring has killed um, the king, Laius, who was in power before Oedipus assumed the throne. Um, so gradually over the course of the play, we realize as Oedipus conducts an investigation of this, um, this mystery, he's trying to uncover who it was who killed Laius. And he finds out over the course of speaking to several different characters that it was him. He killed Laius, who turns out to have been his father. And he also has married the widowed queen of Thebes, Yocasta, who turns out to be his mother. So Oedipus realizes that he's unwillingly or he's unwittingly committed these crimes that are kind of the most heinous of human crimes. Um, and having been forced to confront that revelation, he gouges out his own eyes um, and sort of leaves himself subject to the fates that will um, that will go on to determine what else to do with his life, whether they kill him or, or let him live. 
Um, also in the course of the play, Yocasta realizes that Oedipus is the son that she gave up to be killed many years before, and she kills herself as well um, after that realization. So at the end of the play, we're left with a complete tragedy. Oedipus is being guided along by his daughters, who are also his sisters, um, and it dawns on the entire family that there is nothing but doom and sickness and horror um, in all of their lives. Very bleak play, um, but a really central, I think, Greek investigation of a certain family drama. That is a marvelously concise and elegant uh, encapsulation of the story. Uh, it reminded me why Samuel Taylor Coleridge uh, thought that Oedipus was one of the three perfect plots. Mm -hmm. The other two were Ben Jonson's Alchemist and Fielding's Tom Jones. Mm. Wonderful. So now let's go back to our central question. So I'm not very interested in this question of um, why is it that this is that this is so? You know, it can't be for no reason that uh, every time there's a family in literature, it's always because of some conflict. Sometimes internecine mm -hmm. in the family, you know, some, right. and uh, even in even in Jane Austen. Um, so, so for some reason, in in our daily conception of the family as a safe place, we've we've managed to repress the That's knowledge right. of that, right? Which which literature reminds us of. Mm -hmm. So, um, and I started thinking about this because you, because you expressed excitement about Oedipus, and, yeah. uh, <laughs> and so I wonder if you could um, just say something more about like what, what is it that excited you about Oedipus mm -hmm. and this question of family? Yeah, I mean, I, I just reread Oedipus recently for freshman seminar, and we have only one night on Oedipus, and I, I felt that I just really needed more time, as always, with the text and was kind of carrying it around with me throughout the week afterward, hoping students would, would want to talk about it more. Mm -hmm. <laughs> because I think, you know, on a first pass uh, kind of interaction with Oedipus, it's easiest to kind of hone in on his specific character, him as an individual um, who's marked by by pride, by kingship, and by this this fateful journey that seems to kind of um, only involve his own flaws. Um, but I think that there is a very significant problem that exceeds him as an individual and pulls in necessarily his parents, his wife, who is also his mother, and his children. And the real tragedy is kind of um, about all of these players and the mess that they all are in together. Um, so Oedipus's particular tragedy or particular journey as a character is only kind of one facet mm -hmm. of that. Um, and I, I've been thinking about kind of what goes wrong in this family specifically um, because it's at once so horrible and so foreign to our experience, um, the kind of greatest of all horrors that Oedipus kills his father and sleeps with his mother. Um, and it's not something that directly we have um, a kind of identification with. Um, but somehow the, the visceral kind of character of that horror, I think, tells us something very deep about our own experience of family. And so when I think about kind of what goes wrong in Oedipus, it seems to me that the seed of the problem is with Laius and Yocasta making this decision to kill their son. They've had 
um, they've gone through the kind of natural experience of generating this this phase of life that is inevitable, necessary, um, perfectly kind of in keeping with the regular function of the universe. Um, but then because of the prophecy that they hear that this sun will rise up to kill them, um, they decide to kind of undo the action that they took that was natural and kill him so that he can't replace them. And so to me, this seems like a real misunderstanding of what it is to be a parent, to bring a child into the world at all, because it sort of is a kind of inherent um, acceptance of your own mortality and your own replacement in the world, in your own role. So for Laius, the fact that he's a king means that he it's incumbent on him to have an heir and to be replaced by that heir. It's part of his um, his vocational duty as well as his kind of human duty. Um, so the fact that he is so resistant to that replacement and that Yocasta also is unwilling to abide that seems to then um, bring about a punishment that's visited not primarily upon them, but upon their child. So there's this way in which the, the sins of the father are visited upon the child. And this happens again with Oedipus, that because of what he's done unknowingly, his children and their future are completely compromised. So the whole line is cursed. Everybody is kind of doomed um, because of this, this one failure to understand, I think, in some, in some important way, um, what we are um, what we are committing ourselves to by entering into the family. Mm -hmm. Entering into that, that cycle of generation. That's right. right. Yeah. yeah. So you're saying in a figurative way, um, the child will kill the parent. Yeah, right. Yeah. Um, but I, I'm thinking, so, so in a way you're saying that one of the issues about Laius and Jocasta is that they take the prophecy literally. Mm -hmm. right? and, and so, um, and we know from ancient oracles that you don't have to take them literally. Many of them are riddles. Mm -hmm. And in fact, the very Greek of this text is riddling and enigmatic, right? More so, well, translations have to smooth it out, but the, the Greek is extremely compact and riddling. So it's very striking that they do take it literally. Right, because mm. I think if one took it figuratively that your son will kill you, it could just mean nothing more than the circle, the kind of normal natural cycle yeah. of life um, will continue as it has for everybody else. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that that part of what's so anxiety-inducing about the prophecy for them is the specific political role that they have also um, as king and queen. And that that kind of feature of their existence it seems is complicated by um, occupying the role of parent. Mm. I think that's the case with Oedipus too. Oedipus um, occupies a strange position as a son, I think because he's a king. So he, at the very beginning of the play, addresses the suppliants um, among his citizens as his children. Mm -hmm. And he also um, 
I think they refer to him as first among men. There's this sort of sense that Oedipus has come into the world fully formed. And he has for his people because he showed up, he solved the riddle of the Sphinx, and he assumed the throne at a time when um, the people of Thebes were dealing with um, a power vacuum and a curse and all kinds of um, difficulties. So he has taken on the role of a father for this political system. Um, but that involves this sort of self-authorship and self-sufficiency in his own identity that I think makes no room for the fact that he was generated from mm -hmm. somewhere. He came to be over some process. Um, and that feature of his past and of his self seems to be what somehow he can't accept. Um, so the idea that he could kill his father and he could sleep with his mother, somehow that prophecy unhinges him. And I, th I wonder how much that has to do with kind of wanting to totally reject um, a real relationship with with parents in the first place. Yeah, he wants he wants to be his own man. Mm -hmm. right? right, exactly. Right, so, so you're suggesting that sleeping with his mother is a figurative way of saying, I'm going to be my own dad. Right, right. exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And so it is exactly what comes to pass. That which he wished for um, becomes reality in this, this horrible way. Yeah, yeah. So I'm, I'm thinking, okay, Thebes. Right, so one, lots of strange things happen in Thebes. Mm -hmm. it's, uh, it, it's a very weird city. And the people in Thebes behave weirdly. I'm mm -hmm. thinking not only of this play, but other plays like the Bacchae. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so I'm wondering, would one say, what, what would you say to somebody who, who said, well, weird things like this happen in Thebes. Mm -hmm. I don't see why it's universal. Mm -hmm. right. That's a great question. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think that... That would be fine if it weren't for the fact that Oedipus really does strike a chord. Mm. Um, and I think, I mean, it newly does for me every time I read it, but even my students, kind of just the level of animation, the level of buzzing in the room that night that we read Oedipus speaks to some real, something that's that's uncomfortable, but, but true, um, that surpasses being Theban in some important way. Um, I think, you know, the, the, the way that the curse is manifesting itself in Thebes at the beginning of the play is really striking. That children are not being born or they're being born dead and the mothers are gray-haired, they're wailing. So there's a complete kind of perversion of ma maternal roles, of children's roles. Birth and death are being conflated together in this horrible, perverse way. Um, and the city can't kind of kind of write itself back onto that cyclical, um, natural path. And I think that, you know, despite that not necessarily being an experience that we share in, um, there is something that we fear in that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's, it begins with that atmosphere of anxiety. That's right. right. There's a blight. Mm -hmm. um, and there has to be a cause for the blight. Mm -hmm. And there's a pervading sense of guilt. Yes. It seems, right? We must have done something. Somebody must have done something. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So there's, there's, and that comes from not having had closure. Yeah. Right. 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 And I, I don't know entirely, I mean, for the citizens of Thebes, 
I don't know sort of what that means for them or what what kind of guilt they're feeling that isn't just displaced guilt because of the the killer of the king. Um, some of it seems like it must be their own responsibility. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm not sure. I'm not sure where that, that lies. I mean, I, it might have something to do with kind of helping Oedipus achieve this illusion of self-authorship. Um, yeah. And they forget, they forget the death of their old king. Right. Right. Their old king goes, he dies. That's right. He's, you know, and then this new guy comes along. Yeah. Who saves them from the Sphinx. And um, then they make him king. And Laius is forgotten. Mm-hmm. He's even forgotten by his wife, right? So the first thing, the first thing she, she sees in, in her words is, then I saw you coming along, Oedipus, and, um, and you look just your same age of, that my son would have been, and you mm-hmm. look just like Laius, you know? And so, uh, and, and, she, and she marries him, but nobody follows up on the question of what happened to Laius, you know? So it's like a, it's like a bomb sitting there, mm-hmm. you know, ticking all this time until there's uh, a miasma, you know, that, right. that provokes everyone saying, okay, let's, let's look for this. Mm-hmm. Uh, Laius was murdered. We have to find the murderer now. Yeah, so that seems like maybe figuratively too, there's a kind of forgetting yeah. of their, their father, and replacement kind of without any real, um, without any reflection about what that means and looks yeah, like for right. the family that is, that is mm-hmm. Thebes. I wonder too about the Sphinx. I mean, the Sphinx is such a strange creature to plague the city because her riddle is about the roles of man at different times of, of day, but stages of life. Mm-hmm. So the Sphinx, the Sphinx asks, you know, what walks on four legs in the morning and two legs in the afternoon and three legs at evening. Um, And Oedipus is able to answer this question and say that it's a man who crawls in the morning, who walks aright in the afternoon in the prime of his life, and then who walks with a cane in his old age. Somehow he has this knowledge of the the natural progression that man is supposed to go through over a single lifetime. But nobody in the city seems to know that progression. Mm-hmm. And I wonder what that means, that somehow um, that cycle is not present to them as right. citizens. Right. I mean, Thebans were originally born from the dragon's teeth sowed by Cadmus, right? Ah, uh-huh, I didn't know that. Right. So they came out of the ground, uh-huh. the citizens, you know, so... Um, so it's already a city that is in some ways cut off uh-huh. from the generative oh, cycle uh-huh. or, or denies it in myth. Right. Yeah. Right. And then, you know, there's a way in which I, I wonder if the riddle of the Sphinx reflects how Laius and Yocasta also deny something um, through their own story of Oedipus. Yeah. So they have this prophecy that they receive that Oedipus, when he grows up, will kill his father. Um, So it's something like in his two-legged time of life, Oedipus will kill Laius. But they pierce his his ankles as a baby. Um, I think he's just a few days old at this point. But even if we were to say that he were a crawling baby who would be on all fours, Hmm. there's a way in which they force him now to be 
not on all fours, even though that is the time of life that he's occupying. Right, because he's maimed. He's maimed. Right. Yeah. His his legs are pierced and tied together um, so that he basically, he would have maybe his hands and then one other limb. He's mm-hmm. already maybe in the old man stage of life at that point. Mm-hmm. And they forced him into that position by misunderstanding that in his baby stage, the four-legged stage, he has somehow the power or the threat of the two-legged stage. Mm -hmm. So somehow all those phases of the Sphinx seem to be knotted together by that decision that Lias and Mm -hmm. Yocasta make. And that is a perversion that has to have consequences. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And and perversion is, as you're describing it, an escape from acceptance of the natural cycle. Mm -hmm the cycle of life and death. That seems right, that they're not letting Oedipus's life play out over the course of the full day. They're somehow trying to make him an old man and kill him on in the morning of his life. Yeah, yeah. Because they're so afraid of the, the noontime phase of his life in which he'll have the power of a man. Yeah. So do you think the cause of the action is anxiety? Because I'm thinking it's, it's their anxiety about being replaced. Mm-hmm. And and later on, it's his anxiety about being leg- illegitimate, for right. one thing. Um, and I'm thinking about the other anxieties, you know. So at first, I was wondering if the, if, if Lias's attempt to kill his son is like the archetype of the older Greek gods killing and eating their children, right? Kronos and Zeus, mm-hmm. where, where the archetype is of the older generation mm-hmm. devouring the younger generation to stop time from going on, right? There's not going to be anyone after me, mm-hmm. so I'm going to kill them all. And this is an archetype of the father, right? Way, right? So nothing's going to go on. The mother, on the other hand, the different archetype is, is that the mother is going to stop life from going on by reabsorbing you, ah. you know, right? So, so you have the, the sense of the infantilizing mother, mm-hmm. you know, in psychology, you have the devouring mother, mm-hmm. um, the, the mother who prevents the child, castrates the child, prevents them from, from becoming a full human being. Mm-hmm. And, and, uh, and so Jocasta and, and Laius might be extreme examples, kind of literal examples right. of those um, that then feed into that kind of the other archetype of the man who becomes his own father. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. That becomes, I'm my own guy. No one gave birth to me. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, So, so I'm wondering if if those um, archetypal relations are actually happening or if the action is created by anxiety about them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I, I think to me, it feels like maybe it's more of an anxiety and then the the mythical um, the mythical sort of setup comes to pass as a result of the anxiety that it was uh-huh. meant to forestall. So, because Yocasta, um, it would seem to me that her initial action is not one of intentionally reabsorbing the mm-hmm. son. Um, she is aligned with Laius in killing the son and, in mm-hmm. fact, gives him over to be killed, to be exposed on the mountain. Um, but it seems to be this later development, unbeknownst to herself, that she ends up in this position of being the consumptive mother. Mm-hmm. 
So it would seem that um, the kind of self-conscious motivation is not quite aligned with the ancient um, model, but then the ancient model is is a kind of result. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And her but her conscious intention is is interesting, right? Because here comes this guy who is old enough to be her son yeah. and who looks like her husband. Right. Right. Wouldn't a human being ask questions, mm-hmm. right, <laughs> before <laughs> sleeping with them? Right. So, um, so there's, there's an element of repression there. Mm-hmm. Certainly. Right? I mean, part of what I'm wondering w- with this line of thought is that the anxiety that the play contains and th- that, that, that fuels its action is actually what gives it its resonance to yes. an audience, right? right. So it's, it's not so much the... Um, that the facts are universal because the yeah. facts might not be realized yet, mm-hmm. right? But but we all have anxiety about the father who's going to kill us, the mother who's going to reabsorb us, mm-hmm. you know, the, the life being prevented. Right. Yeah. That feels very true. Yeah, and this is a way of seeing those horrors play out, kind of writ large and yeah. horrendous, um, <laughs> that you can't help but get caught up in the story because the anxieties are so vivid. Yeah, yeah. Even Oedipus, I mean, what you're saying helps me because um, about a third of the way through, the, the question of who kills Laius gets um, focused mm-hmm. on the question of how many murderers there were, mm-hmm. right? And in the early part of the play, uh, a, a number of times, um, several people actually mention uh, murderers, plural. Right. And Oedipus then replies, we've got to get this murderer. Yeah, singular, the singular. Right? And uh-huh. so... Um, so then they have to find the person who's the witness who can say who, how many people murdered Laius. Mm-hmm. Because if it was multiple, then you know that Oedipus was innocent about that. You know, so, so, so legally and forensically, that, that's the important question. Mm-hmm. But we never get that witness. Right, right? we never get it. So <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Yeah, the real moment of revelation for Oedipus happens when the herdsman tells him that it was Yocasta who handed off her baby to be exposed on the mountain. And that is when he puts the pieces together. So it has to do not with the recognition of um, himself as being the father killer, although he has admitted by that point that he killed someone, um, that he killed Laius, just not that that, um, he necessarily knows himself to be the son of Laius. Mm-hmm. But somehow he sees the familial relation when he realizes that it was his mother who left him to die on the mountaintop. And so that is an interesting development, mm-hmm. um, you know, that it comes from the kind of investigation of the father killer to actually being um, decided by this question of the mother's betrayal. Mm-hmm. And what's the logic in that? Yeah, I don't. It's it's a strange thing. Um, I don't totally know what to make of it, except, you know, the, the fact that Yocasta has already figured out by this point what's going on. She's run inside to hang herself, um, and I think in that moment the betrayals are all kind of um, her betrayals against him are all coming to pass at the same time. So her her betrayal in that instance, um, not revealing the truth, even though she's figured it out, 
That's one betrayal. But then the past betrayal is being revealed at the exact same moment. So that Oedipus goes off to find Yocasta and ostensibly do some harm to her um, because he's realized that the woman who loves him and has married him um, has, has tried to kill him much earlier. So there's some way in which her crime against him is much more present to his life now than the altercation with Laius, mm -hmm. which in some way made him who he is, gave him everything that he has. Um, so it seems to me that the, the more painful revelation has to be the one about Yocasta. Mm -hmm. That neither of them at this point knows for sure right. that it was Oedipus who killed Laius. Yocasta right. or Oedipus, neither yeah, one. Neither of them knows. But, I mean, what they know is that, is that Oedipus killed someone. Yeah. Right. He could have killed an old man at some other crossroads. There must have been a bunch. Mm -hmm. um, so they don't, you know, just because they set up that as the crucial piece mm -hmm. of evidence mm -hmm. and they don't have that. So I wonder if then the, the jumping to the conclusion mm -hmm. is not a logical thing. Right. But it's psychological. That seems right. Yeah. That there's a way in which they recognize without needing to be told yeah. the full story. Yeah, um, or, or it's sufficient for them to say, I could, I could have done it. Yes, right, right. And that seems, mm. that's, that's exactly, I think, the emotional um, weight of it, that Yocasta knows she did give up a baby to be exposed, mm -hmm. and that fact has now been revealed. And Oedipus knows he killed a man at a crossroads. Um, but I think, you know, there has to be some further revelation on Oedipus's part because it seems that he has to be able to put together that this woman beside him here is the one who gave him up. Mm -hmm. um, it, it doesn't seem that he has everything he needs to make that determination, but somehow, maybe by her absence, by her pulling away from the situation, it becomes such an inevitable possibility. Um, it, that... that that the potentiality of that having been done by Yocasta becomes so present to him in that moment that maybe it doesn't even matter whether right. the facts bear it out. Right. No, that's really good. Yeah. If I may just quote something from, yeah, from the play that uh, illustrates the psychological shrewdness of this. So, so Jocasta, um, after Oedipus talks with Tiresias, Jocasta poo-poos. Mm -hmm. Tiresias' interpretation, right? And then she tells him, she tells Oedipus, an oracle came to Laius one fine day. I won't say from Apollo himself, but his underlings, his priests. And it declared that doom would strike him down at the hands of a son, our son, to be born of our own flesh and blood. But Laius, so the report goes at least, was killed by strangers, plural again, mm. thieves, at a place where three roads meet. My son... He wasn't three days old, and the boy's father fastened his ankles, had a henchman fling him away on a barren, trackless mountain. Right? So in her first account, Laius is the one mm. that takes the baby away. Mm -hmm. And so in that first account, you're thinking of Jocasta's grief. Mm. Right? And, and Laius as 
a bastard, right? right. Like he's like a Cronus type. And then mm -hmm. later on, um, when talking with the shepherd, he says, the shepherd says, the one inside, your wife, she'd tell it best. Mm. And Oedipus said, my, my wife, she gave it to you? And the shepherd says, yes, yes, my king. I looked in the Greek and the, the word she really is emphasizes heyday. Mm. Right? It says she gave it to you. So, 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 the, shep so the, the story of what happened is, is discrepant. So Jocasta is not telling the truth. Mm. Then if the shepherd is telling the truth, That's interesting. Yeah, and that, I mean, I think for Oedipus at that moment, the fact that she's fled um, tells him everything that he needs to know. Yeah. About yeah. who's really responsible, whether she did in fact hand him over or whether she was just so complicit that she now can't abide this situation yeah. and, um, and stand there and defend herself. It sort of amounts to the same culpability. Yeah, and she couldn't bear to tell him right. that she did it the first time. I wonder if we could pull back now and mm -hmm. see the big picture about family. Like what, what image of family is this presenting? And um, particularly, I'm interested in how universal this is. Mm -hmm. Do you have any thoughts? It seems to be a situation in which the universal anxieties that we've discussed involved in familial roles are on display. And these anxieties, um, when they kind of lead to a misunderstanding, create a, a tragic series of events. Those events seem to be somewhat at a remove from us if we simply don't give in to the anxieties about the family that the characters mm -hmm. here um, seem to get caught up in. Um, but... I wonder if there's something about that that doesn't fully expose what is inherently kind of unnatural or um, monstrous about the family, even as it is a kind of, um, or even as a, a natural and regular unit of, of human experience. Mm -hmm. So in other words, in every family, these monstrous feelings and intentions and anxieties are always fermenting. That's right. Yeah. 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 Do you think it's, it's, it's true of Asian families? I think it certainly is. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, it's interesting to think about the, the differences in dynamics of family conflict that we see, for example, here in the, in the Greek play versus in a lot of Asian stories of, of family conflict where, um, here, the, the drama, the horrors, the murder, the incest are all fully on display, very explicit and uh -huh. loud. And I think often those monstrous forces are very much still a part of Asian stories of family, but much more understated, quiet, sort of imploding um, versus the kind of explosion that we often see in the Western myths. Mm -hmm. What are you thinking of? Um, I'm thinking of of something like um, the films of Yasujiro Ozu, where we see very quiet family dramas in which, as critics have said, nothing really happens. Right. Um, but but it's the greatest of tragedies um, because we're seeing how a regular family engaged in just the normal activity of family life. Um, that is a family in which 
essentially everything's going right mm -hmm. is still somehow a deeply tragic, sad, and um, sort of impossible um, conflictual space. Yeah, yeah. I mean, before we go deeper, I think maybe we should uh, give a short description to audiences who might not be f familiar with uh, Yasujiro Ozu, mm -hmm. uh, who he is. So, um, and you can tell me if there's anything I'm forgetting. So Ozu is one of the greatest of Japanese directors. I think one of the three greatest film directors in the world. Mm -hmm. And he's uh, been described as the most Japanese of Japanese directors, uh, partly because he's so subtle, right? He's not, there's nothing like him that reminds you of uh, a Western film mm -hmm. necessarily. Ozu had a long life and a long career in filmmaking. He was one of the great silent filmmakers. And then um, when he started the talkies, uh, his films became uh, increasingly known for the, as you say, the, the quiet domestic drama, uh, the very subtle domestic drama with no obvious conflict mm -hmm. um, characterized by st a still camera. Right. Right. Usually mm -hmm. about three feet from the ground, mm -hmm. um, uh, just observing the room. Right. That's, that, that's the hallmark of the Ozu style. That's right. Um, and uh, a, a small troupe of really great actors mm -hmm. kind of rotating through roles. Um, his most famous films, Tokyo Story, uh, which um, have come up has come up in several polls of uh, uh, critics as the greatest film ever made. Mm -hmm. right? Think of the sight and sound poll. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, this is this is a major director, a major figure in uh, 20th century art, mm -hmm. right? Who uh, who's doing in a way a Japanese thing in. Um, a medium that was developed in the West, right? Right, um, and and so we're talking about primarily films, uh, his later films, where th there's a focus on family mm -hmm. and marriage, and particular, and in particular, the relationship of a daughter and a father. That's right. right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, Tokyo Story is one. Late Spring is another one. Mm -hmm. So if uh, if people uh, want to see two really great films they should everyone has everyone in the world has to see tokyo story i agree and late spring uh th those who are strong enough in heart that's right. can take it okay yeah so so in in an ozu film you know you see uh, the same um or a similar conflict you know in a way mm -hmm. late spring uh, you have this uh, this young woman noriko who is in her late 20s mm -hmm. and unmarried and living with her father right and she refuses to get married mm -hmm. Right. So in a way, it's a kind of inverted Oedipus yeah. story is that her, her, her friends are, uh, joke about her being married to her father. Mm -hmm. Right. She already is in that situation that would seem to be a kind of perversion of the natural way. But that has become their norm. And it's very stable. Um, from at the beginning of the movie, it doesn't seem that there's any reason why any change in their relationship would have to be compelled um, they seem to have a kind of very contained and effective domestic life together. Um, Noriko's mother has died, but the two of them carry on and live in a in a in a sort of contentment um, that that is insulated from the outside world, in which um, the kind of steady march of of marriage and generation um, seems to kind of be held at arm's length until the father 
realizes that Noriko's getting older and it's only right, it's only normal that she go off and marry. Um, so in some way, the perversion is the, the kind of um, stasis. And then her going off and getting married, the normal activity is, is problematized as tragic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And the stasis is a state of happiness. That's right. For them. I mean, they're perfectly happy together. Yeah, exactly. There's nothing more that they want, right? right. But, but it's the friends and relatives who, to use the contemporary locution, guilt the father out mm-hmm. into um, marrying her off. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. And yeah. so, you know, for, for Noriko, there's no, um, there's no sense that she is going off to a better life by the end of the film when she does, in fact, get married or that she's come to terms with that in a, in a meaningful way as something that she sees as necessary or important. Um, she really feels that she's, I mean, it, it feels to me that she has just been kind of pushed out into this current that mm-hmm. is taking everybody else um, in, in, you know, the, the way that we conceive of modern society through this, this procedure that she, she really wants nothing to do with. Mm-hmm. Um, the only thing that would seem to be a problem, even though she and her father are perfectly happy in their life, is the fact that he will die soon and then she'll be alone. And that, I think, is, um, is the only thing that could compel him, you know, even though there are busybodies telling him that, oh, it's just normal for a woman of this age to be married by now. Um, I think really what makes him feel that he must push her to leave and get married is this idea that they won't be able to sustain this um, situation that they both are happy in and there will be an imbalance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. But we've seen that these films were made just after the Second World War, mm-hmm. right? And, and, in, and in all of these films, there's in a way the there's a mention of family members mm-hmm. who've died in the war. Right. Right. The the sons, the husbands, sometimes the mothers, you know, of of, of famine. Mm-hmm. So they've already lost people early. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so they've been through a very hard time. And now there's, you know, the terrible tragedy of this film is that there is a happy stasis between yeah. these two. Um, and you're saying that this this happy stasis that Noriko refuses to leave mm-hmm. in a way is like the the attempts of the characters in Oedipus to escape from the cycle mm-hmm. of life and death, right? Mm-hmm. The generative cycle. Right, exactly. Yeah. So there's the inversion, yeah. you know, that, that here what really is um, a very happy family is somehow off, needs to be corrected because time is unrelenting and does not allow intergenerational relationships to be sustained yeah. um, beyond a certain limit. And so that is the problem. The problem is not a denial of those roles. Um, a problem is, you know, the problem is too much of a love or comfort in that space. Mm-hmm. But what, I mean, the, the kind of villain is normalcy, naturalness, regularity, the yeah. progression through life phases. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And, and what, is it, what is it threatening? What is normalcy threatening? It seems to be threatening, um, or at least seems to be asking what is valuable about um, marriage and generation in and of themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, why not just 
sort of sit back and opt not to participate um, and enjoy a kind of different existence, enjoy a marriage to the father, a marriage to the child um, of, of a kind, um, that, that option is not on the table, even though um, two loving and happy people are involved in the situation. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so the inevitability seems to be about um, kind of the question of what her life would be like in the future. And that's what's motivating a move out of the stasis, mm-hmm. that she would be alone and there's something insupportable about that condition. Mm-hmm. I wonder if also, let's say one of the things that keep coming up in that film is questioning Noriko's sexuality, uh-huh. right? Her boss and I guess her friend at some point, they, they discuss whether or not she's a lesbian. Mm-hmm. Why isn't she interested in marriage? What not she interested in men, right? And a lot of the times her relationship with, with men, you know, sometimes handsome men, mm-hmm. there's no vibe coming right. from her about them. You know, she's just very happy to mm-hmm. be with them. And, and so then, uh, not finding any attraction to men, the the te- the impulse then is say, well, she's a lesbian, mm-hmm. right? And and so she attracted the women. But one of the most moving things that I found watching that film recently is that perhaps Ozu is content with a love without a label, mm. right? That it's 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 a love and it's a happy love. Who cares what it is, mm-hmm. right? It's 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 not like anything else. But everyone else is trying to put a label on it, right? Right. And and I wonder if it goes to the the kind of subliminal criticism, a kind of implicit criticism of her friends and relatives, that what's that the relationship between Noriko and her husband is, is incestuous, mm-hmm. not literally, but mm-hmm. but metaphorically incestuous, right? right? And um, and I wonder if that is uh, is a label that is generated from anxiety mm-hmm. about some relationship, some profound relationship that gives joy and and is and has no term for it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think that's right. I think that the the perversion that's perceived there seems to have to do with that stasis itself. The fact that there isn't generation, there isn't a kind of um, extension beyond the time that they're in. Um, that to to the outside seems um, seems somehow monstrous, right? So the I think the the kind of forces that want to label it as unnatural are coming from that anxiety about um, some kind of oblivion, about mm-hmm. not continuing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that might very well echo the anxieties of Japan in the post-war period, um, near obliteration and the aftermath of that being a kind of insupportable position. There has to be um, a gesture, even even if it's um, if it doesn't feel right to us or doesn't feel um, doesn't feel sort of inevitable, um, there has to be a gesture at at some some kind of self preservation, at some kind of beginning continuation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right, right, because of the anxiety about cessation. Yeah, right. exactly. Yeah. And oblivion. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But somehow Noriko doesn't seem to to fear that. And I wonder if, you know, here we, we might be getting some of 
the Japanese spirituality being expressed through her character, a kind of peace and calm with, with the idea of cessation. Yeah, that does, that does relate back to Oedipus in a way, you know, so the, the anxieties that, are, that, that, are, that generate Laius's actions, Jocasta's actions, Oedipus's mm -hmm. actions, all come from the fear of cessation, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Of being swallowed up into something else. Right. And um, Noriko doesn't have that. Right. Right. And that feels unusual. She doesn't, I think it's, it's sort of hard to relate to Noriko the characters in the film can't do it. And I think often viewers have a difficult time relating. They don't understand, like you said, her relationships with these men, why there isn't chemistry, mm -hmm. um, what the nature is of her relation with her father, how her happiness even expresses itself. I think that we often are skeptical of the contentment that she professes and seems to sort of um, have no anxiety about herself. Mm -hmm. But I think there's a difficulty in in seeing ourselves in that condition, being yeah. happy, being content, being at peace with the stillness. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So that, that scene before her wedding, right, where she's dressed up in a traditional costume mm -hmm. and she says goodbye to her father for the last time. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a sublimely beautiful scene, mm -hmm. but it's one of the most painful things I have ever seen mm -hmm. on film, right? And, 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 and a lot of it is wordless. Right. Right, or, or, or conducted through platitudes, mm -hmm. right? And, and we also don't see the wedding, right? And, and, you've, and you've mentioned in our previous conversation that this feels very much to you like the end of Oedipus where, uh, where the scene of Oedipus finding Jocasta hanging and putting, and putting his own eyes out, mm -hmm. that that's not described, right? right. So, so as if there's something unspeakable that's just right. happened, yeah. Right, so here in this, in late spring, it feels to me that by not showing us the wedding, Ozu might be saying something like, this is the violence that's being mm -hmm. done. This is the horrible act, the unspeakable thing um, that, that really marks the tragedy of the whole film. And el eliding that moment, I think, helps us feel the violence of it because, because of not seeing it in the way that we do in the Greek tragedies. Yeah. So we, we are left after Noriko goes we're left in the space of her room. There's a long static shot of the dressing room with a mirror reflecting nothing, reflecting no one. Um, but somehow that space is holding her presence and her absence and just keeping us there away from the events of the wedding. Mm -hmm. We're just sort of left waiting, not witnessing, um, but there's, there's music over that image and you really feel um, the fact that this fracture has happened in a perfectly happy yeah. environment. Yeah. So do you, do you think that a film can communicate the depths of this kind of thing? Absolutely. Better in a way than most forms. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because film... In, in a lot of ways, I think when we, when we think about film, we think of it as a kind of congregate mm -hmm. um, of different media. So obviously it has the language of photography in composition. It has a language of literature or a novel because there's story, there's, um, it takes place over time, the events unfold. And we have the language of drama, um, of performance and staging and all those elements. But there's also 
I think beyond all of those um, ways in which film traffics meaning, there's another unique characteristic way of expressing meaning that is unique to film. And I feel that in something like this moment where we're just left with this bare room in late spring. Um, there's a way in which the image of Noriko present, her conversation, her last conversation with her father, that right in front of you being replaced by an image of emptiness. Um, it's hard to express the effect that that has, the juxtaposition mm -hmm. of one image against another. They, they create meaning by their sequencing and by their difference, by what they have in common, um, all in a way that is really challenging to express, but seems unachievable in, in sort of any other way. Mm -hmm. It's its own mode. Yeah, I mean, it's akin to music. That's right, right? yeah. But, but, it, but it's meaning, it, it's a kind of meaning that is not logos. That's right, exactly, yeah. Yeah. exactly. I mean, me music may be in a way partly logos because some of it is mathematical mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. in nature. You know, I don't think everything, but there's something about film, about the, uh, about the image and the way the image works with all these other things that takes us to another place. Mm -hmm. It's very true. Yeah. Um, it's, it's really challenging, I think, often with Ozu specifically to articulate how meaning is being made because, especially because he devotes so much of his attention as a filmmaker to images that don't further the plot, yeah. that don't have anything to do with the narrative. Um, and yet they have everything to do with the meaning of the story. Yeah. Um, and so how that works, I mean, it, it feels like you can't interrogate it, mm -hmm. um, but it, it flows over you in a way that's unmissable. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know it's happening, and yet there's not, like you said, there's not a kind of logos for it. Yeah. Yeah. So do you think that, that films might be an essential addition to the liberal arts? I think absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, I think that that mode of meaning making that's unique to film um, can transport us in ways just as powerful as any of the other media that we that we take to be um, the traditional liberal arts. And I think that that also, I mean, because it's such a new art form, um, those ways of making meaning in cinema have not at all been exhausted. Um, there's so much left that can be developed um, out of the moving image paired with sound. And I don't think we even fully understand um, what, you know, what we've already seen, what we've already witnessed yeah. in cinema, mm -hmm. or what might become of the medium. Yeah, yeah. Remember, um, there's a document at St. John's from about 1935 where Scott Buchanan, mm. one of the founders, articulated his vision of the college. And it was as a four-year great books program like we have now mm -hmm. and a fifth year called the St. John's Institute, in, the St. John's College Institute of Cinematics. Oh, wow. Right? So it was way back when he was visionary. Huh, in right? and, and open, 35, right? And of course, like, this was you know, after the height of the silent period, when you might mm -hmm. say that everything had already been done in film, mm -hmm. right, except, except sound. But, um, but it, it's amazing that he would call for that, you know, and as an additional program, it's not, um, he couldn't see it as fitting directly into, mm -hmm. you know, the great books curriculum. But I, I think the way 
um, we would talk about a, a film like Late Spring or Tokyo Story now is a kind of text where you, you do learn to read it. Mm -hmm. you, do, you do develop sensibility and sensitivity to it. Mm -hmm. You can talk about it, right? And, and nobody is subtler and more mm -hmm. perceptive than Ozu about things like marriage and aging and um, and the relation between generations. Right. Yeah. Nobody, not even Jane Austen. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. And strangely enough, you know, Ozu and Jane Austen never married. It's <laughs> <laughs> interesting. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, the subtlety is so remarkable in film because, you know, when when you write, each word is is sort of pointing somewhere natural and just kind of as a feature of written language. Um, and it's not really clear with images, with movement, um, how we understand that, that way of indicating or expressing. Um, it's often by absence, by omission. Um, and there's something, I think, that, that we can do so much more work in kind of understanding how that's, that's being done. I mean, I think it, when you say that um, Buchanan thought about this extra year as an addendum, not as part of the initial program. It makes a lot of sense to me because I think you're right that we we need to really learn to study yeah. film in a certain way. Um, you just, can't just slot it in. That's right. right. Yeah. You can't just slot in a single yeah. film in place of a seminar and again kind of expect to be able to read it because it is a, a sort of different way of engaging um, that I think is, it, it's really challenging to develop um, that that mode as a reader i think it takes a lot of time and exposure yes yeah well we've we seem to have covered a lot of ground um from oedipus talk of family through east west ozu mm -hmm. and then film and um and, and i think uh the adventure has been interesting and uh, i've seen many connections you give me a lot of things to think about now i'm going to have to re-watch Ozu Absolutely. and reread Oedipus. Um, and so I thank you for that provocation. <laughs> Wonderful. Absolutely. Thanks for having thank me, you. Krishna. Continuing the Conversation is a 20-episode web and podcast series produced by the St. John's College Communications Office in partnership with 12 FPS and A Warehouse Productions. To continue the conversation with St. John's College, which offers a bachelor's degree in liberal arts, in-person and online master's degrees in liberal arts and Eastern classics, as well as summer academy for high school students and summer classics for lifelong learners, go to sjc.edu.